Welcome to Stage Presence, the podcast for community theater artists and emerging theater artists to take their craft to the next stage. Today, we're talking about playwriting. My guests today are Marcia Johnson and Stephen Elliott Jackson. Marcia has been a theater artist in Toronto for over 30 years. Her latest play, Serving Elizabeth, premiered in February 2020 at Western Canada Theatre, followed by a run at Thousand Islands Playhouse. Stephen is an award-winning playwright and AD of Minmar Gaslight Productions. His play, The Seat Next to the King, won Best New Play and Patron's Pick at the Toronto Fringe in 2017. Welcome to the show, Marcy and Stephen. How are you two doing? Pretty well. Thanks for having me. Doing pretty well here. And yeah, no, thanks for having us on this show. It's, it's wonderful. So I guess the first thing I really want to talk to you two about is sort of your background, your journey to becoming a playwright. So Marcy, why don't we start with you? So how did how did this all happen for you? Um, well, I'm as an actor, really. And if I'd been given really interesting roles and gotten a lot of lead parts, I probably never would have started writing. Um, and so it was just a means to an end to get myself on stage in lead roles and show people that, hey, look, see, I can carry a show. And people did like that, but they were more impressed with the writing. So, so I had only meant to write for a little bit, prove my point, never write again and get back to acting. So that blew up in my face. But now I've kind of found a sweet spot where I still have both careers going. And how about you, Stephen? What's your story? Uh, completely opposite, because I, I did not get involved in theater. I didn't actually have almost any theater growing up. Um, I grew up in a really small community of 100 people, so uh, theater was not an option, really. So it just came, the writing all came first, and it was always my interest in stories and how to get stories out that were not always the most heard stories. So for me, yeah, I started off just writing short stories and then writing, like, I'd write little projects for school. And then when I was in university, I was doing both film and theater because... Um, I decided to take theater on a whim because I had done some like some scenes and stuff like that for school and such that I had written for classes. And I just fell in love with creating the whole uh, scenario of a scene and the whole play and everything. That's how I kind of came about it. So it was really interesting how some people would talk about how much theater influenced them. For me, it was I actually started to write the theater before I actually saw it. So let's let's talk about the process. Yeah, you have an idea for a play, specifically an idea that centers around real people or a real event in history. So Marcia, your play Serving Elizabeth, and Stephen, your play The Seat Next to the King. So my question is, where does the conception start for you? Is it is it the event or is it character driven? Well, for me, The Seat Next to the King, I almost say it almost started about 20 years ago. So when I was coming out of the closet myself, I, I was kind of an odd gay in that I, I didn't go to the bars first. I went to the library first. And so when I went to the library, I was finding all these unique and wonderful stories. And I remember finding finding by a Russian story very early on. By the time, I wasn't like thinking, oh, I'm going to write a play about him. I just I just try to fight, figure it myself. And so when, you know, 20 years goes by and you all of a sudden run into another person's story, and that's Walter Jenkins. And I look at these two men and go, it's so fascinating. These two men can live the exact same time, almost encounter the exact same world, have extremely different experiences. But what would happen if you place them in the same place at the same time? And I think that's what I find interesting about history is that there are moments like that when you, when you look for it. So See Next to the King was um, one of those things where I found these two characters. I researched them heavily. I knew at the time that in order to write both characters, I had to know them almost as well as they knew themselves. So uh, while also understanding the fact that what I'm writing is fiction, like ultimately at the end of the day, I'm writing fiction because um, – this is, it's not like, I can, it's not verbatim theater. It's, I'm creating these characters. So I always remind people that it's, it's still fiction at the end of the day, that they didn't meet that I know of, that I don't know this, but here's the, all the facts surrounding them that can make this meeting happen. And so that's how I kind of went about writing Seat Next to the King. I wrote it, I ended up writing the first draft in four days in the McDonald's at the end of the street, because it's the only thing that's open after eight o'clock at night. And so, <laughs> so, and it came fast. Once I do a lot of the research like that, the characters kind of come alive in me and I start to speak through their voice. And that's how I end up writing. And that's how I ended up writing the scene next to the game. So for you, Marcia, like serving Elizabeth, it, it stemmed from an episode of The Crown. Yes. Well, um, it just really changed everything for me because a lot of times 
I have a hard time thinking like, you know, I'll think this is a good idea for a story, but like, how does it turn into a play? Or this is kind of just a theme. How do you, it's not always easy. The story is coming to me. But when I was watching that episode of The Crown, that they, um, it was set in Kenya and it was when George VI died and Elizabeth became queen, but she was in Kenya with her husband, the Duke. And they actually, from all the histories that you see about that particular part of her story, she was only there for a few days. So they don't spend a lot of time on it. But in The Crown, they actually went to South Africa on location. And then I thought, oh, this is a new day. This is wonderful. They're showing the fuller aspect of the story. And by the end of the episode, I, I was in such a rage because none of the Black people had meaningful roles. Some of the only few who spoke were servants and they, it wasn't in English and there were no subtitles. So I just thought you took the trouble of flying to a continent filled with black people and gave none of them lines. And I just thought that's wrong. This is 2015. This is wrong. The next day I found out that uh, Thousand Islands Playhouse was forming a playwrights unit, 2017 playwrights unit. And that since it was the 150th year of Confederation, they're looking for playwrights who want to uh, develop plays exploring like colonialism and the after effects and whatever. And I said, well, I have an idea. <laughs> so, so I put together a pitch in just a few minutes. Later on, I read it, it was filled with typos, but they still invited me. And I think the passion came through. And it was just really good. Every month we'd get together, I'd read them my new pages. And by the end, like in less than eight months, I had a two-act play, the longest play I'd ever written and the play I've been the most proud of in my career. Uh, it's it's a wonderful play. And, you know, I, I want to dig into research right now because uh, in your play, Serving Elizabeth, there's this great moment where Tia challenges Maurice Maurice being the the screenwriter for the fictional series in your play. Um, and she challenges him on what type of research he actually did to write a script set in Kenya. Now, for you, Marcy, it wasn't just about the episode of TV that you saw. It was about those events that took place in 1952 when the royals visited Kenya. So take us through your research process for Serving Elizabeth. I developed the characters that I, I wanted to, whose story I wanted to hear. So I thought, what if the person who was to cook for Elizabeth was a staunch anti-monarchist. What if the in the production office there was someone like a young black woman who is a huge royal watcher and is thrilled to be living in England, like she's from Canada, and then she is just if she reads that script and she's faced with, oh my gosh, how deluded have I been? So the the line in the script when Tia, the young intern who's a, who was born in Kenya, raised in Canada, now living in London, when she does meet with the writer of the show, she's the one who says, write what you know, research what you don't. And, and that's something I always say. And But the thing that I, Marcia, always add to the end of that, so write what you know, research what you don't, and don't let anyone tell you what you know. Because so much of what you write comes from an emotional place. So I might actually identify with a character who looks absolutely nothing like me, who has lived a different life experience, but because of something in their history or whatever, I know that person so I can write about them. And I will do the research to help flesh out who they are. So the research I did was to just bolster what Mercy, the woman who would cook for the princess, would be. And there was a woman's revolt um, five years before the visit and a lot of land that was uh, passed down from generation to generation to the women of the family uh, was just taken up by English settlers and people were paid very little wages to work that land and, and destroy the soil leading to droughts and the like. So that was painful stuff to learn, but it gave me a really good reason for this woman to rage against the monarchy and colonialism. Yeah, I, I really like the character debate in Serving Elizabeth, you know, how in the fictional TV series they created interns for Churchill that weren't real. 
So the question being asked is why couldn't this happen for characters in Kenya that could have been there during that same time? So what about you, Stephen? You have two men that did exist. You said uh, you wrote the first draft in four days. So what research did you do to get to that draft? Well, I, I think that for me it is, is I do a pile of reading even before I even conceive a draft or an idea. Um, and so it's, you, you have to really intimately know these people when you're writing about them because you want to make sure that you're offering them in the most like real and still respected life light that you can. Uh, for me, writing uh, Seat Next to King, it actually evolved from writing a play before that. Um, so I had was working on this draft of a show called Fenian, and it was it was it was I refer to it as my wake up call of how I write and how I was writing history. And I used to use just the, the the history book and how that went about. And so I did this draft of this play called Fenian, and I realized I had a draft of uh, fifteen white people <laughs> in the play. And I looked at that draft, I looked at that synopsis, and I went, "Well, I that that's not right. That's not at all what what would have been in there." And so, and at one point, I had a black, I, I added a black character into the show, and I actually had the guy reading him who was black tell me that I wrote a character that was too intelligent uh, for the time. And I was like, but there were, I was kind of going on the assumption that there, like there, there, there were, there were black characters, black people in history writing books in this point time. They were black people who were being, who were speakers, who were, weren't quite politicians at the point in that play, but there, it was getting close. And so for me, I had to kind of really go outside myself and really like look at the world in a different light. And so Seat Next to the King was sort of the one where I said, okay, I have these two characters who are both wonderfully intelligent, and I can make them intelligent, and that's fine. I can let them kind of really kind of speak out. So the research for me uh, was just like, it was just being solved with the, the, the events of, of what their life was like. Um, when it came to their very personal experiences, it was tricky because for for queer characters in history, we don't get that much insight into their very more personal lives because again for so long they're not allowed to write that because it was illegal it was they would they would be in prison they could be institutionalized like all those options and so for queer lives you kind of have to find as much of their stories as you can and then think about what other experiences of pe people who would be like them would be in history and so i kind of had to mold that in that certain way so that's why i do very much say that even though it's talking about real people it's still fiction at the end of the day because i have to kind of create that experience around them and so while all their experiences are real of who it, who they were the details and stuff like that i may have to go outside a little bit and find that experience from other people's experiences as well too i remember one experience when the show was being done at theater center where an older gentleman came up to me after the show. He just came up to me and started crying on my shoulder because the experience of being caught in a bathroom uh, for sex uh, was very real to him and that it actually had happened to him when he was growing up. You know you've done a good job when you've connected those two experiences together and they are real to the person who actually experienced them in real life. I'll put this out to both of you. And, and I mean, like, you know, is, was there any sort of steps that you had to take in terms of life rights or, you know, just sort of to get the green light to kind of put this piece out? Um, well, since uh, Elizabeth is a public figure, um, that's, I'm safe there. Um, but everyone I created was fictional. Even the writer, uh, even the miniseries is not the crown in my play. It's a, it's a miniseries about the life of the queen. And I just chose different ways of presenting the story because Peter Morgan, who wrote The Crown, he wrote every single episode the first season, I believe. He was also executive producer. But in my version, Morris, he is the writer and he has to answer to producers and the like. It just made it more, you know, for the purposes of my story. I, I really hate if, I ha if I'm constrained, if I'm constricted. So this gave me more freedom. And plus, <laughs> I think there's no liability because I'm not saying anything about, you know, who I'm not saying anything about Peter Morgan. Yeah, it just helps to make um, fictional characters based on real events and real things, because then you can steer the story in any way that you wish. I, I'm a dramaturge as well as a writer. And uh, 
when I have playwrights struggling over their draft and I was saying, well, um, maybe it should be going in this direction. And they'll say, well, no, because I put this here and it has to be there. And I said, and I'll say, you know, you're in charge, right? You know, you can just change that and make that path a little bit smoother or whatever note it is that I'm giving them. I try to be very open or I've learned to be very open when I'm writing things um, that, you know, it, everything is valuable because it helps you get to the final draft. Uh, but don't be so precious about it as you're writing. And when you're writing about, you've created a fictional version of something, it makes it way easier than having to go back and say, so uh, how old was he when that happened? Or when did this, like, I can just make it all up. And then what about for you, Stephen? So, you know, you have, you have Bayard and, and you have Walter and, and the two real figures, you know, one in social movements, the other one in, in politics. And what did you do to go about to be able to kind of create a story, like of a, a chance encounter between these two? Oh, well, I, I think I just took the risk. Um, <laughs> of, of just uh, of like, I mean, both have passed away, but we have to remember that Bayard's partner is actually still alive. So <laughs> I took a risk kind of, of writing these characters who are both around and, it's interesting how, like, uh, hearing Marcia talk about kind of that limitations, and sometimes writers put that limitation, especially when you're writing fiction. But like with these two characters, I, I actually, I love those limitations because they constrain me. They can kind of, they give me like, there's certain things I can do, certain things I can't do, and, um, and so I kind of, I, I kind of get a thrill out of that. When I'm running show plays, I will like, be constantly researching as I'm going along as well too, and like I'll be like, okay. Okay, so I can't do that. Okay, that didn't happen yet. That didn't happen yet. Okay, but I can do this. or And I'll be doing that constantly as I'm writing. But when it comes to real people, it's so odd to me. Sometimes I feel like, well, you know, we everyone puts themselves out so publicly as people. And I just feel like it's almost like free range. Because, again, I, 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 I stress, you know, it, it's still a fictional play at the end of the day. It's funny. I saw uh, a musical version of Bayard Rustin's story after uh, I had rinsed seat and it gone. We'd done our version here at Fringe, and it was so interesting to see the different versions of how we saw this person's life. A musical version, like it, it was, it was fascinating because they I, they really tried to tell the entire story in in a stage show. Where I I'm very much one of those people who likes to write uh, real people at a certain moment where things could change, where things could go one direction or could go another direction. So that what that holds is that I can reflect thing, on things in the past and those experiences can influence what the character is going through now. And I can sort of like foreshadow what things could happen in the future, but I can't say for sure exactly that's going to happen. <laughs> and so I, I kind of love that thrill of limitation and I love that thrill of it's sort of like when you're watching a TV show and you you know something's going to happen to someone. They don't know it. No one else around them knows it but you know it as a writer. And I find that this to be utterly fascinating. Yeah, I, I think this is a big question that writers have. They, they, they say to themselves, I want to write about a public figure or figures, but can I? So the answer is yes, as long as you don't pen them in a negative light. That's the way to avoid defamation. But um, both of you have given us a great example that we can. So go ahead, write about that person you've been thinking about writing. Yeah. Well, uh, to, to honestly, I um, I was somewhat subversive with Elizabeth. I feel that there were moments where I showed that she was complicit uh, and that she has some kind of awakening. Um, but, you know, if you follow the royals, you'll see that uh, maybe that credit that I gave her, she didn't follow through on it. <laughs> So, yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, there was one older gentleman when we did the Sean Cam loops, and I could, t even though he was being kind, I could tell he was somewhat offended that uh, Elizabeth would be shown in anything but like a glowing light. And his suggestion to me was what if I switched the actors? What if a black woman played Elizabeth and a white woman played Mercy, the cook? And, you know, I took a deep breath <laughs> I tell you and I'd said well one of my purposes for writing this play and all my plays from now on is to shine a light on people whose stories have been marginalized or underrepresented so to have a white woman tell a black woman's story would be feeding right into the issues that I've had about you know the state of theater my whole career 
Uh, and he's like, oh, well, yes, I see. Well, if it's important to, to you to have it that way, <laughs> like, you know, so for, for all you're saying, Tim, that like I was kind to her and whatever, there are people who will read other things into it. Like he saw how subversive I was that she wasn't this perfect person. <laughs> well, and I think, can I say, I say that, you know, when you're running about characters who are real is that they're human beings. And so they have these moments of positive and negative. I remember with Seed, um, there's a moment in the play where um, Bayard acknowledges the fact that he's been also, as much as been shunned by the white community, he's been shunned by the black community too, at the same point. And that can be a very tough moment for an audience also experience too, right? And so, but that's the honesty. And if you do it in an honest way and just reveal that these people are human beings, I feel like uh, an audience will will have to choose to either accept the version they're seeing in front of them or not. And they may not like that to hear some of those things or hear those bad things about someone. But the fact is that these people are history and we're, we're, we're doing the research to find out the choices they made and they, and people make bad choices. Well, yeah. And, and, and I mean, how interesting is theater if the person's perfect all the way through from beginning to end? It's, it's, you know, reality is is messy, right? We like our characters need to be messy. So yeah, uh, one thing I'm really pleased with is an English professor who read the play and then saw it at Kamloops. She wrote the foreword uh, to the just recently published edition, and what I really appreciated that she got was that um, the black characters weren't saints and the white characters weren't evil. They were they were people with their own flaws and, and everything. And like, and I said, well, thank you for noticing. And that's the assumption a lot of times when a black writer wants to take um, a a familiar story in history and and tell it, people just think all we're going to do is beat people up. And, and, uh, and then they're shocked when we don't. Um, It's really interesting. Yeah. So you have this idea for a play, and I want to dig into a little bit about process in terms of preparation to actually write. And, and it could be just very well, just sit down and start writing out scenes. But, you know, I, I just want to get an idea on your feelings about creating an outline. And, you know, it was when I was looking up about doing outlines, I came across a quote from Charlie Kaufman. And he says, you know, when I'm doing, uh, when I'm on my own and I'm doing something for myself, I don't do an outline. I build it little by little as I'm working on it. I don't know in advance how it's going to end. I like to have the freedom to see where it goes. And I think, you know, to some writers that could be utterly frightening to not have sort of a structure. Like, you know, we've heard people say before, like, if you're going to write something, write the one where you know the ending already. So what are your thoughts? Like, do you as a writer create an outline or do you just sit down and write? Um, Yeah, when I have, uh, when I've been commissioned, that's part of the process. They want to see an outline and all this kind of stuff. And so I have to force myself to like, uh, contort the story I have developing in my brain into these boxes that they ask from me. And they can be really helpful. Uh, the most beautiful words on it, though, are subject to change. <laughs> because when, when I write on my own, I just like, it sounds weird, but I just sit down and let the characters talk to me. A lot of times I have no idea where things are going. I had no idea how serving Elizabeth would end. But I remember in my outline um, writing something like, and their lives are affected in ways they never believed or something like really generic. (laughs) But um, it's helpful, you know, to to rein it in when you have these time limits and you have to have a draft by a certain date and something. Um, But when it's just something from my heart, from my gut, I, I just sit down and write and I throw a lot of stuff away. Uh, but um, I'm the kind of person that if I actually lay something out and plan it, I get so overwhelmed that maybe I'll clean my house instead. So <laughs> You just get overwhelmed that you have all this structure in front of you that you have to kind of, like it's almost feeling that you have to commit to it. It was like, well, I put that down in an outline. I guess I have to do that scene. Yeah. What about you, Stephen? Um, it, it kind of depends on which play it is. Because, I mean, sometimes I will outline if I feel like there. It's a, it's, a, it's a play that is going back and forth in different scenes quite a lot. Then I might kind of plot it out a little bit into not not saying exactly what happens in those scenes, but that this is that these, this kind of complication happens, and this complication happens, this complication happens. But when it comes to like C, C came really super fast. 
And the reason why I think it came fast is because just like Marcia mentioned, I kind of just let the characters speak and tell me the story and let the story come out almost in a very natural way and not knowing how it was going to end. I had no idea how it was going to end. I, I do remember though, when, when we did the production at the theater center that there was one patient who left the show early by accident. She had to go to the washroom and didn't realize she couldn't get back in. Oh. And she thought that uh, it was going to end happy. And I, my partner was outside. And he's like, no, when was this going to end happy? Like, it was not going to end happy. <laughs> <laughs> like an happy ending. That's one thing I make sure. And so I don't like to know the endings for sure because sometimes I may think, oh, this would be a nice happy play. And then once you start writing it and writing these characters and, and having them come fully fleshed out, you realize there's a lot more thoughtful ending than just a happy or a sad ending. There's something else that happens. I just I love it when the characters speak through me. So sometimes an outline doesn't really help much. It just kind of it places something in a in a certain place, and that's about it. And I let the characters tell me the story from there on. So and, you know, and I guess tie into this um, talking a little about linear versus nonlinear. Like, is it is it just straight from scene one and keep going or? Will an idea pop in your head? Do you feel the freedom to be able to go in and write, you know, say scene nine? Cause it's just like, Oh, I have an idea. Or do you feel that it needs to be all connected? Huh? Honestly, it's so hard to describe. It's just that I'm, I'm taming this beast, you know, and I, I'll reread something and I'll think, huh, I think that would make more sense at the end actually. And now that means it's going to change this part of the play. And you just have to do it. That's what I mean about laying things out and having everything organized. I can't possibly know the order of things or, or how things will work out. But if I just let it happen, then these genius things, you know. I, sometimes I feel like I can't take credit for my writing. I, it's so hard to put into words. It's just if I'm open to the world that I'm creating and the characters that I'm creating, then they get to do the talking. It's so weird. And like, and I change up and down. Like I keep refining, um, refining my method or discovering a new thing or discarding this, this other way of doing things. Um, I'm, I'm constantly learning. I wouldn't say like I'm working on two plays now and uh, I'm approaching them completely differently because that's what's dictated to me by what it feels like when I get in there. What about for you, Stephen? Like, is it is it just straight linear, or do you do you bounce around? Do you kind of go like you know? Oh, I have a big idea for Act Two. I'm going to start writing that when I haven't even completed Act One. Yeah, no, I I don't. I, for me, it's very linear. I I write from beginning to end with always the reminder in my head that whatever I write in Scene One will need to be changed by the time I get to Scene the end scene. Uh, and because the problem is, is that. You start off with this idea and you've got these characters in your mind of who you think they are and then they start to speak and you realize the story starts to go in a different direction than where you started. And so then I and so I, I always kinda of keep myself in a reminder. You know, I for sometimes I find the biggest problem that writers often have is the constant editor that goes on throughout throughout while they're writing. And I I never edit while I'm writing. I write it fully out because at the end of the day I have this piece. It may not be perfect. It may not be something, but it's the start of something. And so I then can go back and refine the parts to match up to the vision that I feel the ending often tells me what the vision of the whole play is. I find that at the end that by the time you've written these characters fully out in this like <laughs> marathon of writing that you've been doing, uh, the ending is often the more honest place that the play is supposed to be at. So you have to make the beginning reflect where you're going to end on. And so um, I, I, I don't like to jump around too much because jumping around means it, you can get a different feel for every scene every day. And I feel like if you, even if you don't write every single day, the minute you jump back in the play to start writing again, the feeling will start to come back. And that's kind of the way I write. Exactly. And, you know, and I, I love the comment that you made about, about that like inner voice, that inner critic. And, and I, I think, that is really what holds back a lot of emerging writers or new writers or any writer of actually getting their piece onto the page because, you know, you're just you're a over, horrible person. Yeah, it, <laughs> very, <laughs> you're overthinking it way too much. And I heard it was, uh, it was uh, Stephen Schwartz that said it and it's like him and his writing partner. And I think it's his writing partner on 
Prince of Egypt. And they so when they first started writing it, they he, he literally calls it the the crappy draft, but it has the more swear word in there. But uh, and it just by by putting it there, it just it just gives you the freedom to say, yeah, this is going to be crap. Let's just get it all out and then refine it as we go on. Go back, go back, go back, and then and then rewrite. You know, I I often say to people that when you're writing. If the worst critic in the room is you, there's the problem. <laughs> don't be don't be the worst critic in the room. There will no. be piles of people afterwards who will see your show and be that worst critic for you. <laughs> <laughs> be the kindest you need. So uh, let's dive into characters because you know one of the biggest you know pitfalls that writers can fall into is each character has the same voice and you know how do you create unique voices for your characters and and what, what's really interesting about you and uh, your piece Marcy and we'll start with you is um, you've written in such a way where the actors are playing two different characters in two different time periods so there has to be such a difference between those characters to allow the audience to sit back and go, okay, now I believe that this person that I've been watching in 1952 is now this other person in 2015. So what, what's your process in creating unique voices? Well, you can tell that I'm an actor too, Mm -hmm. because I love writing things for actors to just sink their teeth into. Um, There's one character who's very similar in both eras and that's TF Faith Mm -hmm. and that's on purpose, you know, Uh, but all the others, I like giving them, like really different things to do if you're you know if you're a a reserved um you know member of the royal family in this scene you could be like the uh hard talking production manager in the other scene i i just uh i i like giving actors things to play with like i i know that my writing isn't complete until other people speak the words uh, and that's the advantage that playwrights or dramatic writers in general have over novelists and other kinds of writers because they're on their own for most of it. And when I finish that ugly, wonky first draft, no one expects it to be good. I can't know where it's going until I hear it read out loud or get someone else's perspective on it. Each of those characters is funny, like they all have different voices, but I inhabit all of them. You know, I, that, I, I get to get that side of me that is, you know, energetic and hopeful and whatever. I get to just, you know, speak in her voice for a while when I'm having this conversation. All of the characters are me, you know, I'm like everyone else, a multifaceted person. And I just indulge in those negative and positive aspects when uh, creating each of the characters. Yeah, I really like that. What about you, Stephen? How do you find unique voices for your characters? Well, I know I was very influenced by the fact of that that gentleman who said the black character couldn't be intelligent. I knew I when I was right by her that that was giving my ha ha here you go uh, <laughs> to the moment um, because I I hate those restrictions. I mean. When when we're writing about history, yes, characters have to have a certain vernacular from their time period. They have to have certain like when I I was just recently working on a piece set in the 1840s, 1860s, and someone kind of reflected on the fact that I really tried to use the wording of the time, tried to keep that, and that's very true. You have there's certain things you have to kind of keep constrained on when it comes to a character, when it comes to words and voice and such. But I like to kind of open up the door that. There are lots of different types of people from that time period. They all could, they can make come from a similar experience, but they might speak very differently and have, again, have a different feelings towards that same experience. And so when I'm writing the character, uh, I, I can write it to, I try to get inside the character's head as much as I can. The fact is, I can't be Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin has experiences that I will never have. That's actually, it's kind of interesting. When I chose my director for the piece, that's one of the things I actually said to the director was that, you're, you have experiences that I will never have, and that's why you'll understand Bayard in this way so much better. And for Walter, it's the same thing, though. Even, even though Walter and I are both white people, we have very two different experiences of what being gay means. Because for Walter, it's a very closeted, very uh, hidden experience. Well, I'm in 2020 now. Uh, my experience of being gay is be very different than what he had. And so I try to get into their heads as much as possible. I try to just find the 
as authentic a voice as I can for them. But at the end of the day, it's yeah, when Marcia had mentioned about the when the actors come in the room, that's when it really, really gets alive because suddenly the, the characters become alive for you in front of you. And some actors can do great, wonderful things with your characters, and some actors can do horrible things with your characters. <laughs> and 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 you have the choice of what you accept and what you don't accept from those readings as well too. I, you know, it, it's kind of like when people give you advice on shows and how people. I say always listen to the advice people give you. You don't have to take it, but always listen because there might be something of a, of a grain of truth in no matter what they say. But it's always good to like reflect on it, but you don't have to change that way. But some people might have great great advice that might bring something to it, and especially with actors. Actors, you know, because I'm not an actor. I don't go anywhere near the stage if I can help it. I, I, I've, been, I've been tripped on stage. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> but... I, I, I really do depend on actors to kind of bring that reflection of the character back to me to say where if I'm going in the right direction or not going in the right direction. It's true. It's like when an actor will get their hands on it, they will kind of be able to kind of find what that voice is in themselves. And mm-hmm. and and then you as the writer kind of sit back and 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 take notes of that. So so say, you know, you've had this opportunity to kind of hear it. You're still not finished with it. So what is the rewriting process for the two of you? Like what do you look for when you go back through the script? Um well, when you hear it read out, out loud, even if they are bad actors, <laughs> and you really you get to learn there are very good actors who aren't good workshop actors. Mm-hmm. And I just keep that mental list in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe for production you'll be great, but boy, you you do not understand how things work in the workshop process. But um, oh gosh, yes. Yeah, so for me, there are things since it's been trapped in my own head, and I'm doing my best job playing these ten characters. I have my limitations. So when I hear the wonderful like Jeff Pounceet say a line out loud, and I'll go, oh. Oh, I see. I get it now. So a lot of times I end up slashing dialogue because this wonderful actor in that first line of the monologue delivers the message, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're reading some scene over and over and the very good actor keeps tripping over a line of dialogue, I'll think, mm, I have to figure out a better way of saying that because it's not natural. So the reading dictates to me what I should change. I try not to say at the beginning of a reading, this is what I think isn't working. I just, because I've been wrong on that front before, (laughs) you know, so I just let that dictate what needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The editing process is is interesting. Yeah, I I concur a lot of what Marcia mentioned there. There are some actors who come in great and some who don't. Uh, but what I love about he, when you hear the words, and she said it very nicely too, is the editing process of sometimes, I, I remember my very first play reading I ever did, and I was crying near the end of this monologue, and a friend said, oh, are you all right? I said, yeah, I know that was so beautiful. If it were like three quarters shorter, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to say all that I needed to say there because the first three lines were, were more than enough. It ended up being a ridiculously long monologue. Um, and so now I don't write super long monologues anymore very often i feel like with the editing process that uh once i hear it uh i can kind of figure out where it's going to go and there is something about line i'm marcia says something about the fact of not being precious and i'm very much not a precious person when it comes to my editing process because we can't be we can't get so wrapped up in this is exactly perfect the way it is until we hear it and because we will discover so much about ourselves and so much about our writing when we hear from other people. Um, my biggest thing is I love wor- words that mean utterly nothing in my play. Actuallys, varies, reallys, I throw this in all the time. And I'll hear them out loud and I'll go, oh, right. And I'll have to do, so now I do the process where I do my first draft. The very first draft, I actually go read it again and I take out every one of those words. I just rip them out completely because I'm so good at saying those uh, in real life. I'm so good at writing them down on paper. And I think they're doing something and they do utterly nothing. Uh, I love hearing actors. I just, I, I absolutely love it. You know, even when sometimes it's not a great reading per se, I still love to hear because it may not be just the actor. Sometimes it is the actor, <laughs> but sometimes it's not the actor. And you realize that you just have to go back and just fine tune stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the great thing, right? Um, 
I just don't think that, you know, unless you get it until, until you hear it read, you really don't get a complete vision of what the whole play is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not, the whole story isn't defined by the words of dialogue on the page. There are these other people who have to help bring it to life, including the actors, but also directors and the designers. So when you see these really busy scripts where everyone has monologues and all the stage directions are you know, so precise and like, you don't have to do that. You know, you give them the, the, you know, they'll, they'll fill in the rest. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, when you say about designers and stuff, I, uh, I'm very much, I don't write a lot of stage directions almost ever. Uh, I write the very basic stage directions. I give you the setup of exactly, I tell you where it is, but I don't design it to the extent that uh, you can't move around it because there's a designer out there, there's a director out there, there's a costume person, a lighting person who you want, they love the freedom to explore. Yeah. And they love the freedom to take that on. I remember with Seat Next to the King, when Tanisha got the script initially, Tanisha Tate, who was the director, she was scared initially off because there was almost no stage directions. Mm-hmm. And then she realized, oh my God, this has been a, this is a gift. I can actually direct the show. <laughs> And not just not it's not paint by number. It's you know it, it it's something greater than that. Yeah. And in my stage directions, I don't refer to the stage at all. I say this is a restaurant. This is a drawing room. I don't. Yeah. It's 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 not up to me to say what is happening stage left or what the lights are doing. We always kind of wonder where is that line in terms of writing stage directions into a script? Is it good for creating sort of like a vision or integral to sort of what's happening in the piece or is, you know, there are a certain amount of stage directions sometimes a writer will put in that's considered a faux pas and it's like you you don't want to dictate to your creative team. So, um, you know, what is that fine? Like, cause you know, I was thinking a little bit about serving Elizabeth and there's such amazing little moments in there that you wrote in. It's like where faith grabs mercy's hand and pulls her down to the table. Like, I want you to be a part of this conversation moment. And, And as like, as a reader, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm bought into that moment even more. And as a director, I'm like, yeah, like that needs to actually happen. So what would you say is that line? Well, visually, um, that's what needed to happen in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there are sometimes, like uh, I have another play that hasn't been produced yet, if anyone's listening and would like to produce uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a Jumping Ship, uh, anyway. A, a raunchy little, anyway. Um, and I have a scene where this couple kiss, and my stage direction is it's the most awkward kiss in history. <laughs> so I could have written, she moves her head to the left just at the same moment he's doing this, their faces bump into, I could have, but I want to leave it to two actors to create that. And I think that would be fantastic. So though that little moment in serving Elizabeth. If I went to another production, if there were to be any, and the director found another way for Faith to stop her mother from doing something, that wouldn't bother me, you know? But in that moment, that's how I, I wrote it, yeah. I love that. I, you know, and I think that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it's funny, it's kind of like from an actor's standpoint, it's the reverse to, to be given a subjective note in the audition room. Like, uh, can you can you kiss awkward? Or can you be more sexy? Or can you flirt? And you're just like, okay, can, can I know what you actually think that is? Because then I'll play that. But like, our thoughts on that are, are very different. Where mm-hmm. in a script, I love that, because then it's just, it's open to interpretation being like, yeah, have fun, play with what you feel mm-hmm. is going to be awkward. I'm not telling you like you said, that sort of choreographed awkward kiss. Like, no, just be awkward. Well, for me, stage directions, it's it's the necessity of the stage direction. So if someone gets shot, someone's got to pull a gun out. Like, it's that sort of mentality. It's like one has to, it's cause and effect. Uh, but I also think stage directions have to reflect what Marty was saying, the idea of space, in that if you want them to have a, a quiet moment together, you have to say they come together. How they come together how it looks, that's what the director's vision brings forth, right? And what the actors bring to the table, how they come together. But, I mean, I feel like, I remember there was, (laughs) in Seat Next to King, in the very first scene, I wrote down, Walter goes to leave like eight times in his first 15 minutes. And 
I, I think Tanch at one point just realized, it's, are you like really bent on those things being exactly where they are? And I said, I said, no, not exactly. I just, I just have to, you have to know that he has to have, he does, he doesn't want to be there, but he does want to be there all the same time. That's all you have to know. And so she kind of played with that a little bit. Um, sex scenes for me are ridiculously, I, I can't write them. I, I just, there's no way around it. I cannot get them. And so I wrote Walter and Bayard make out at the very end of scene two. And Tanisha turned it into a beautiful choreographed, almost ballet of intimacy that I never could have written down on a piece of paper. It was something that the director and the actors had to come together to figure out. Yeah, it was beautiful. Oh, that, yeah. that, that love scene is utterly... I remember, the, I remember during the Fringe, there was one night where the, the audience actually clapped the love scene. <laughs> That's how beautiful it was. <laughs> I know I wanted to clap when I saw it. So what would you say are your tips or best practices to overcome writer's block? Well, just to uh, don't believe it exists. Mm. In my opinion, writer's block uh, is just the fear of writing something bad. Mm-hmm. And I would say, write the bad thing. It's better than a blank page. And at least you've had something to build on. What about for you, Stephen? Oh, yeah. Honestly, is when you get the moment where you tell yourself you're not supposed to write something, just keep writing through it anyways. There's no such thing. I don't. I shouldn't say there's not such thing as writer's block because we're going through a really interesting time of, with COVID and isolation. And I'm hearing a lot of writers talk about how hard it is to write. And it is. But I find that with writing that give yourself reasons to write and you'll find them. If you have to, you know, honestly, at the very beginning of COVID, I, I could see the problem. I could see it. Happen. And so I initially I entered uh, a 10 minute contest, a 24 hour 10 minute contest. And then I did a 24 hour. Up where you write, produce, and act the show out in like 24 hours. I did those right off the top just to keep my mind in that space when I was feeling like it could go in a better, a work, a workplace. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so, and honestly, the best thing, I mean, if you're writing history, it's what honestly the best thing is, is reading. Honestly, just reading as much as you can because you'll find ideas. You'll, you'll find a character and go, who is this character? And why do I want to tell their story? You'll find an inspiration. Uh, so, yeah, believing in writer's block, there's no reason really to believe in it too much. Uh, yes, it's true. And sometimes it's harder than other times. Uh, it, yeah. So I love what you said about give yourself a reason to write. My take on that, what I do is give yourself a reward for writing. So a lot of times, I don't know what it is that I'll I'll hold up some things like, if I get to the end of this draft by five o'clock, I can watch the next episode of like whatever show I'm binging. And like, I act like there's actually someone holding me accountable, right? <laughs> but it's just me. And it, it seems very real, you know, it's like, and I'm getting there and getting there and, and I will do it. And then I will re- reward myself with whatever that is that I set up for myself. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect. It, it, it's true. It's, oh, I was just going to say, it's true. Like the reward, I, I heard Ken Davenport said it. And it was just like, he he says, you know, put 50 bucks aside. And when you finish it, give yourself that 50 bucks and you've just become a paid writer. <laughs> <laughs> and keep putting your work out to places that will need your work too. Uh, Marcia is wonderfully involved with Toronto Cold Reads. And honestly, that's one of the best experiences you can have to create your craft as a writer uh, it's a safe space where you can present something and people can hear your work. And that type of kind of uh, influence can help push your piece forward as well, too. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, the reason you talked about it, I think, is is really imperative because, you know, some people work better under deadlines, right? So if you're like, okay, I'm going to be a part of this 24-hour festival or, um, you know, there's there's different companies right now are, are posting, like, send us your treatments, send us your submissions, um, cause everybody's going to be looking for new content when things can reopen. And, and so, but you know, there's deadlines to those and it's great when there's a deadline because now you have something to work towards. So I think, you know, the reward or the reason are, are two great tips. So thank you coming towards the end here. So I guess the, the, the biggest thing that the two of you have learned that, uh, that you would give advice to a, an emerging writer, like what's that, like one piece of advice that you would want to let them know. Don't stop. Um, if you have a bunch of unfinished projects in your drawer, uh, go back to them 
learn how to get through to the end of a script. You can't, if, when you abandon it, when it gets to the ugly, difficult stage, um, you're not going to learn how to overcome that. So I would say finish your projects, get some people that you trust to read it aloud, and then move on from there. But if you keep starting something and then not finishing it, you're not going to develop your own writing practice. Mm -hmm. You're kind of just creating that as your habit. You have a habit of starting and not finishing. And, and I think what, I like what you talked about there is because that's, that's sort of what we consider the dip. And that, that dip is the hardest place to kind of not allow yourself to quit. And then once you kind of get out of that tough part of the writing process or, you know, somewhere within that script, um, it, it's, it's just that feeling of, of relief and joy that you've actually accomplished and finished. Oh, it, it feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I concur with the feeling that when you get to an end of the script, it's absolutely the most beautiful moment in the world. It's, it's euphoria. Um, for me, yeah, I, I like to go back almost right at the beginning of this, of the of this talk show or this kind of podcast is that the whole idea of write what you know, write what you don't know. Uh, I feel like that's the biggest lesson I ever learned because the right we know is finding out where your place in the script is. Writing what you don't know is the fascinating curiosity about the world and about people and things going on that you don't feel are connected to you. And that's where the great joy of writing plays is, is find the connection between who you are and things that are not you and knowing that they have a connection in this world. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, this has been great. So thank you so much to the two of you taking the time to, to talk to me and, and sharing some amazing tips to new writers and, and, and just writers out there that are trying to accomplish writing a play and, and congratulations on, on all your success. And, um, and Marcia, I know we will get to see serving Elizabeth somewhere here soon. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and your published copy looks utterly beautiful. Um, so congratulations on that. And, uh, Stephen, congratulations on being a part of a very unique experience with the virtual fringe this year and with your piece. And I can't wait to see what's next from the two of you. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Well, that's our episode on playwriting. Thank you again to our guests, Marcia Johnson and Stephen Elliott Jackson for sharing their process and tips on how you will get your next play on the page. Uh, in the show notes, you're going to find links to their plays that we were discussing on today's show. Please check out those plays. Grab a copy. Seriousness, if you're an artistic director listening, grab the play. You will want to add this to your season when everything can reopen. They are wonderful shows. Uh, the opening and ending song for Stage Present is Coyote by David Newberry. Thank you, David, for the song. This show has also been made possible by the generous support of the Oakville Arts Council and Cultural Grant. For more information on us, we're the Burl Oak Theatre Group, so please check out our website at www.botg.ca. And as always, if you like this podcast, please share it, like it, leave us a review. We want to know who's out there, and we want to know who's listening. Thank you again for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Stay safe and well.